Hey, hey, everybody, it's Tierra Elise, and thank you for tuning in to Chats with Champs. I am here with my bro, Peso, and today we have a special guest all the way from Chicago, Illinois, one of my favorite cities. Please welcome Richard Dent, Hall of Famer and Super Bowl XX MVP. Now, I hate to start off any discussion with negative energy, but it's not looking too good for the Bears this season. What's, what's going on with the Bears? What do you think needs to happen for them to see their first victory? Well, you know, they, they got the first victory last night against uh, Washington. And, uh, you know, I know the Chicago Bears this year, where they beat the team that I thought they should beat, and that's Washington at the first game. Right now, they should, on my schedule, they should be at least two and two or three and two. I had them winning 10 to 12 games this year. Uh, at the early part of the year, you can see offensive play. Uh, they did not have any type of game plan like what they had just the other night. Uh, not using quarterback legs, not using quarterback up under the center, making them drop back and, well, not even dropping back, but just taking a snap and a shotgun to me is not Justin Field type of offense. He's a guy that likes to keep feet moving. And I think it's time that his clock goes off when he's up under the center. Taking the ball in the shotgun and trying to throw the ball from that point, you know, his clock and his head just does not, to me, seem that he's working well in that space. So we, we need to do better about the talent that uh, we have there now. What was it like playing in a uh, swag in the 80s? Well, you know, there it was, you know, uh, the NFL got its pro offense from the swag. And the pro offense is when you have two wide receivers outside and you got a tight end and you got two uh, running backs in the back. That's your pro offense. And that came from the swag. If you look back in the day, NFL was running wishbone, we were running a lot of other things that, Indiana, uh, Michigan, Ohio State, different schools like that was running. It wasn't a passing game. But to me, you know, Tennessee State, when I got there, uh, I came there with three other my friends. And my high school coach, I just knew I wanted to leave Atlanta to find myself, to find, you know, who I was going to be. I wanted to, uh, for my mother to appreciate what are her kids going somewhere, doing something? I was the first one to finish high school. I got seven brothers and one sister. I'm six out of nine. And uh, when I got there, and uh, my coach was standing there, and the head coach of Tennessee State said, Hey, coach, we didn't ask for this guy. And it was me. So <laughs> my coach put his, his arm around the coach and pat him on the shoulder and said, Good luck, coach, and walked away. So at that point, I knew that, you know, I, I three of my buddies, I came, but yet, you know, they wanted to do an offensive lineman. I'm like, I'm 195 pounds. Who am I gonna push around? I don't <laughs> see it. I wanted to be a tight end. Do so, I thought I was quick and fast. And uh, I just realized, you know, they, they, uh, they weren't focused on me. So when people are not focused on me, you know, I had to go to the Diamond Squad. The Diamond Squad is basically the offensive defensive team that give your offense pictures, but you on the offense. And to me, it was about giving them a picture 
because I was looking down on the defense and seeing how they were, and if you were competing, he would play. So I started preparing myself, and you know, and I started showing him that uh, this is not for me. Let me show you what I'm about. Let me show you where I should be going. And I basically, for a whole year of fall and spring, prepared myself to go to defense, but I was doing it on the offensive side until they decided, like, hey, okay, after it's over, they said, you're going to defense. When I went to defense, the tough thing about defense was that our defensive team, we had to run the track. Our offensive team ran the track, but everybody left the track at the same time. But on defense, we had to run the two-mile, 14.45. We had to run the mile at six minutes. We had to run the quarter at 58. We had to run four two-twenties, but the first one was 28, 29, uh, 28, 31, 33, 35. And we couldn't miss the last one. You can only miss one. So that six-minute mile was something that, you know, I think every kid in his life, we all need to be pushed to a level that we don't know that we have. And Joe Gillum, Tennessee State, they pushed me to a level that I didn't think I could, you know, accomplish. And once I was able to accomplish that, you know, the next year I basically ran that mile, ran all those those races and and made that time. But this man was all about if you gotta quit on me, you gotta quit on me on this track before we get on this field. So I I remember many all Americans dropping their bags, leaving Tulsa State, leaving, you know, swag. And, and at that time a lot of folks felt like uh, you know, you couldn't out be found. But when you look at the history of black colleges, when you look at the Hall of Fame, you have as many Hall of Famers that went to black colleges, down nearly as much as one that went to the big college. Did um, growing up with so many siblings mentally prepare you for football and the challenges that it brought? Football wasn't, it, it wasn't my thing then. You know, at that time, my dad thought he had the next Jackson Pop. You know? <laughs> In the early 60s, I mean, we have talent shows in our backyard starting a quarter to give you the concert, you know, over at East Lake uh, Golf Course. Uh, the, the, the YMCA was right there off the first hole. So to me, I I was a big kid, and I used to play with my brothers and friends, and, and yet, you know, I was the person that really, you know, found out that, you know, the stage was not many. I enjoyed the stage with my brothers. I could sing, I could, you know, play the bongos or something. Uh, you know, but after you look at the money and when it's spread out, when you, it's like, hey, this ain't so much. I can cut grass. I can work with my mom at the church on Tuesday and Thursday. You know, they make my own money because the clothes and the hand down did not fit me. So I had to go out and find my own because I knew my family, couldn't afford it. I knew my family didn't have it. So, you know, I had to go buy my first swing bike for $119. That was a lot of money at that time. But, you know, that what got me to work in it out. So I was a young entrepreneur, if I would say. I kind of want to go back to you discussing the role of HBCUs in shaping your success. Uh, my brother and I, we both 
our HBCU students. We, uh, well, I graduated from Grambling State University and he's currently studying at Grambling State University. So that's where that SWAT question came about. But there's a misconception um, that's, and, and I'm sure you've probably heard about it today, is that most of the top players choose to go to predominantly white institutions because they don't feel that they'd be seen going to historically black colleges. But I mean, would you agree with that? Or, or how would you, I, I guess, um, kind of cancel that misconception that just because you went to an HBCU means that you're not going to make it to the league? Well, I made it, you know. <laughs> so I, I think I think that that's, a, you know, one preference. To me, uh, today's world, you can be fouled anywhere, okay? So if you're doing well and you're the top kid coming out of, you know, out of Illinois or Georgia or wherever, decided to go to a small school, the media and press is coming. Now, back in the day, no, that didn't take place. But yet and still, they knew where the athletes were. When you, again, when you looked at the Hall of Fame, when you look at the Hall of Fame, you will see many players that clean from HBC years. Damn good, money like clean from big school. That's there today. So, to me, it's a it's a preference, you know. I I think that you know the little kid mind today, you should give him a scholarship because when a kid comes to your school, he's coming there to help the school, to, you know, make money for those other students to play football. So now, if I really wanted, if you wanted to be an attorney, you couldn't be an attorney and play and play sports. So you know, the idea is, hey, you know what? Maybe we give you a scholarship to come back to school to be a lawyer, okay? Or you can finish that degree down. This is money that's never gonna, you know, deplete itself. Uh, scholarship always go up. So if your money is going up, to me it's something that I can pass down in my family or something that I can come back to school and get because I couldn't get it done when I was in school, didn't have the time to do it. But if I have a scholarship, and in the closet that I can use, to me, that money on hand compared to, you know, you, you know God is getting money today. I agree with that 100%. Um, I think that, you know, just your stance on HBCUs and just the incredible journey that you've had throughout your career is a testament to, hey, look at where I've been, look at what I've been through, but look at where I am today. And Speaking of today, um, Bleacher Report, a couple days ago, I saw that they've recognized you as uh, top 10 best defensive players of all time. So how does it feel to know that even after about 26 years of retiring from football, that your name is still making waves in media today? Well, that's nice to, to be heard, to, to be talked about, you know, all you can do is prepare your work and, you know, today's bones appears to be a little bit different than Dad, and Dad was different than my time. So, you know, to me, I'm all about, you know, uh, having a legacy, but also giving a legacy to the younger generation. I mean, today's kids now have an opportunity to make a lot of money and to do a lot. I mean, when I play, we fought, we struck for 
the guys that played in the 50s and 60s that didn't make hardly any money. They had a second job, you know. So imagine them playing 12 games and also having, you know, having two jobs. And uh, in insurance-wise, some guys that wouldn't even bring $200. I mean, there's no insurance at all. To me, that's the, this is the part of the NFL that kind of irks me to me that, you know, this is where I see the slave mentality of how one go about picking one and using one, right? So here's a situation where everybody that's a part of the NFL have insurance their life from their top office down to the coaching staff. The only person that does not have insurance the rest of their life is the players. We are the ones that prayer. It's 75, 80% minority that black people that clean. Now the white folks are now beginning to be the minority when color is coming to be the majority. Again, it's a problem that we're we're fighting, Caucasian people are fighting because they feel that they're being, you know, moved off the planet or they can't compete on the planet. So everybody's fighting, hanging, and wanting to take away from people of color which they once were to protect them. Now that wants to be taken away. So, you, you know, we have to, you know, you know, my mom always taught me how you get to heaven is we all are God's children. You know, we're on this planet to serve people. You know, whatever you're doing, you're serving someone. If, if it's bad and good, it's serving one. And to me, if we can, Finding something you love and enjoy and serving people and you have to make a living off of, that's great. Finding someone to love you and you can love them. If you get those three things in your life, it's a great place to be. Do you perceive any changes in ownership since you retired? Uh, you know, the better to... I'm well. I'm surprised, but yet, yeah, you know, it's nice to see uh, at Chicago with Waukegan being two miles up the street. You know, never had a black secretary in, in the office. Anybody black that was either a coach or equipment man. Uh, that's what I saw for the 12 years that I was there. Now today's world is totally different. I mean, the CEOs have to be black now. You know, the general manager having to be black. Uh, you have women, they have men looking folks of color that's working for them. So it's nice to see, but again, people of color is the majority of the world today. And if you're not inclusive, if you're not bringing those things together, then what are you doing? Richard, you once said that where we spend money is where we give chances to first. And you signed on to the Bears, an eighth round draft pick, and you've talked about being overlooked because so much money was spent on the first rounders. Can you describe what that moment felt like when you finally started the, se the next season? When, when a team drafts someone, you want that person to go out and make you look well, okay? This is why we picked you that way. But when it doesn't go well, and someone, you know, at a lower pick, now they're in a situation saying, well, how you're in the media saying, well, you don't know that guy, that guy is this or that or whatever it may be. 
and the team, it feels like you're in an embarrassing situation where you don't know what you're doing, but yet you want to feel that way. So to me, um, my second year, well, my, my second year, I started the last 10 games. And that last, the last 10 games, well, the seventh game that I started, I didn't have the one side, so I was only bringing 30 down. And finally, they decided to, you know, let me play. And, you know, things took off. In three games, I did 10 sacks. And in 10 games, I hear 16 sacks. So I led the league. So here it is. I didn't have a one sack for six games. And I ended up leading the league with, with 10 games going to the league. So uh, and I come back to, hey, you know, I think I, you know, I got a future here, right? So I wanted to, uh, at that time, I was only making $80,000, and, and now they got an option. The option wasn't mine, it's their option. So I wanted to make sure that uh, they insured me and get me a large to run it in before I come back to camp the year that we won the Super Bowl. I uh, wanted to make sure that they were in good faith and negotiating a contract with me. Uh, so I held out until that came about, and that came about, and while I was playing, I was negotiating. Now that's that's taking a chance, but that's you know that's life. That's how it goes. And I'm looking at the guys that I'm playing with, and to me, if I can make my teammates better, you know, I have all I need. So I can do my thing with the team that we're playing, not just worrying about me, but worried about Otis Wilson, worried about Wilbur Marshall, worried about the Freeland, worried about Steve McMichael, worried about Dan Hampton. You know, so you gotta understand. I mean, all of these guys, Steve McMichael, well, Dan Hampton was a first rounder. Mike Singletary was a first rounder. Otis Wilson was a first rounder. Uh, Will Marshall was a first rounder. Uh, uh, William Perry was a first rounder. Mike Hardenstein was a first rounder. Al Harris was a first rounder. These are all first rounders of the defense. And here it is, you, a seven rounder, coming here. And you're better than all of them. I knew, I knew that, but yet I knew the organization was all about promoting, you know, the people that they put, put in that spot. Every NFL team, you look at the NFL team today, they're only going to promote one or two guys on their team. We're not out to pay everybody on the team. Because you look at Kansas City, the tight end and the, and the quarterback, maybe one of every team. Any team, they're, they're only going to promote one or two guys. All right. Now, our team at one time, we had so many guys that was great, felt that they was great. We competed with each other to be great. And, you know, every three commercials, two of them were Chicago Bears. You know, you had Mike Bisco on there. You had Wiggle Perry on there. You had uh, 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 Jim McMahon. <laughs> you, had, you know, so we. We had so many characters where we really owned the market where, you know, we can only go so far, you know, and and uh, it was fun, but but yet, you know, knowing why, because I went back and I go back into the state, I looked and I always saw a lot of great ball players leave Tennessee State, but they were not making it in the league. And I always had Chili Rodgers saying, why? What is it? It was late or what? You know, what is it they were doing? So to me, I had my eyes on the NFL and why until I got there, I couldn't find out what was taking place. 
but I, you know, found out a heck of a lot, you know, after being there for a short period of time. Earlier, you was talking about being like purposeful and taking care of people. Since you retired, you've been active in uh, philanthropy. Is it any like charity event that's close to your heart that you really tend and look forward to every year? Well, you know, uh, that's what I enjoy. I think where I am now is to, when my mother passed in 88, I started the Mary Lynch Dent Foundation. Then uh, I went to Leo Burnett and we came up with, excuse me, we came up with another name with the Make a Dent, Make a Dent, Make a Difference. At that time, I really was all about homelessness. You know, to me, you know, I'm in the energy business, so my family, we didn't. Sometimes the lights wasn't on, uh, the gas wasn't on. So I would always had a thought, what if that was all about? I didn't understand that. You know, so at some point in my life, I, after football, I got into the utility business uh, where we sell natural gas, we sell electric. Uh, you know, Illinois is a state where uh, the supplier, basically the suppliers come in. So those are the people who own the polls but taxpayers actually own the poll. Wherever you at in the United States, the taxpayer own the poll, okay? And someone is there to deliver power to your home, right? After this, I may have to get with you, one, to lower my electricity bill, but also <laughs> to see how I can get involved with this. Um, so this is my last question before we go okay. ahead and wrap up. Um, so you, you talked about issues that players face once they retire. What are some things that players now currently playing may not be aware of that they should start preparing themselves for once they retire from football? Well, I, I think, first of all, you have to have curiosity. If you don't have curiosity, time will pass. Okay? That sign come up, that sign go down. You know, you got the curiosity of what are you going to do the next time that sign come up? You know, having, being in touch with something that you may enjoy. You don't have to do it 24-7, but stay in touch with it. Right. Secondly, you know, I and a lot of other guys have given you opportunity to do well in this space, to make a lot of money in this space, do whatever you, you want to do in this space as a football. To me, what are you going to give back? I got two sons that's 118 and 115. What are you guys going to give the kids that's coming, right? And so here I'm looking at the NFLPA. They're going to sign a 10-year contract. You know, you're going to have three television contracts take place. You know, and, and here you lost the 10 years. Here my son be in the league for three or four years if you can get there. If you want to go there, you know. So what are you giving back to the people that have given you something? You know, you have to be able to pass down. How are you doing that? Is it anything you want to tell a young player that's trying to have dreams or aspirations of going to the NFL? Is there any message you want to get across before we go? Well, let's not dream about the NFL. Let's dream about what's inside of you. What is it that you want in life? How is it that you want to give back? What is it that you want on this planet? You know, to me, if you can find someone, or if you can find, if you can drill it, if God gives you the ability to see it, then you have to get up and be about it, okay? You, yeah, you got to follow that light through the night, and you got to get up, and you got to do whatever's necessary to 
on your mind. Amen. If it's not on your mind at night, then chances are it's not going to be on your mind when you wake up. So if God gives you the ability to see and feel things, you got to get up and be about it the next day. Well, thank you, Richard, for stopping by chatting with us today. You definitely gave us a lot of knowledge, a lot of insight. And like the kids say nowadays, you dropped a lot of gems on us. So we want to thank you for taking time to do that. And also thank you to all of the listeners who tuned in today. Thank you guys for what you're doing and, and uh, you know, spreading messages, spreading love, you know, giving kids, you know, ideas or curiosity is what it's all about, you know. Like I say, I you want to get to heaven, how you love one another, and how you treat one another. Thanks again for your service. You got me want to go to church today. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> you go there every day. Father God, trust me. If you can probably have them here, take it where you need to go. All right, that's a wrap. Thank y'all for tuning in. I hope y'all enjoyed the content. We got more coming. Make sure you like, comment, and subscribe. Until next time, Godspeed. World won't know, so somebody got to talk about it. Girls wanna know what you did to that woman. Yeah. The world won't know.